0: What the Lord says, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Well, Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this word and for all that's happening in these chapters of Luke before Easter. We pray that you would take us in our minds and our hearts back to those momentous events and help us to recognise in ourselves uh, patterns of discipleship that we should embrace as well as patterns of disobedience that we must avoid. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Good, well, Christians today are facing um, a crisis. Of unprecedented proportions. Uh, on average, 90,000 Christians are martyred for their faith every year. Uh, one mission agency said that in 2017, more than 200 million Christians had to contend with some form of persecution every single day and 60% of that number were children. Fox News recently published a report in which they said this, there are many places on earth where being a Christian is the most dangerous thing you can be. Now, of course, by the grace of God, that kind of hostility is not yet our experience. But here, as in other Western countries... The climate is starting to change. Uh, Two or three generations ago, it was unthinkable that there could be a serious public debate about the morality of assisted suicide, or about the nature and definition of marriage, or the ethics of terminating a baby in the process of delivery. These were issues on which the the public had already made up its mind based on an accepted standard of truth and a recognised benchmark of right and wrong. But of course today, these issues have moved beyond mere discussion. Euthanasia is already being practised in certain countries. Gay marriage is on the statute books. And abortions are considered to be a matter of personal choice. That's where our world is today. And it's a crisis that touches all Christians everywhere. And if you're a Christian here this morning, it touches you. So can I ask you, how do you cope in a crisis Of course, I'm not here talking about the crises that are so familiar to us and are so much a part of our everyday experience, things like the water crisis or the the poverty crisis or the political upheavals in our country, important as those things are. Now, I'm asking, how do you cope when your Christian convictions are challenged? How do you deal with that? Do Do you stand firm? By your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, or do you buckle? Do you compromise? Do you, in the end, run away? Now, that actually is the theme of our passage this morning from verse 39 to verse 62. Last Sunday, we saw that when the disciples went into the upper room, they were absolutely confident that the Lord Jesus was about to be made king. And you may remember that they were squabbling amongst themselves about who was going to have the top jobs in his administration. But just 12 hours later, the disciples were scattered. They were totally defeated. It was an extraordinary reversal that took place in less than a day. And uh, if we read our Bibles thoughtfully, and I hope you do, We do have to ask the question, don't we, why were the disciples defeated so quickly? You see, Jesus had already warned them about his death on several occasions, and he'd told them that his death was not going to be the end, but the glorious beginning of a new chapter. So, when the crisis came, why couldn't they cope? Now, in our passage, Luke records three incidents, three different crises. And in each crisis, Luke draws a little picture in which he contrasts the behaviour of the Lord Jesus with the behaviour of the disciples. And we need to learn from both. We need to learn from the disciples because like them, we tend to think that we're much stronger spiritually than we really are. Uh, We started to think about that, didn't we, last Sunday morning. We tend to think that when a crisis comes, we're going to be fine. But we forget that as you and I seek to make Christ known to others, both by our words and by our lives, that we're actually engaged in a spiritual battle with a very powerful enemy. And like the disciples, we often make the mistake of thinking that we're far stronger than we actually are. So we need to learn from them. But we also need to learn from the Lord Jesus. And in these verses, we need to see Jesus not only as our great example, which of course he is, but also as our indispensable resource. Because you see, the disciples didn't have to collapse They didn't have to be defeated. And they wouldn't have been defeated if they'd only learned the lessons that Jesus wanted to teach them. So, what are these three crises? Well, first, in verses 39 to 46, there is what I've called the crisis of testing. The crisis of testing. Now, if we ask the question... How did the disciples meet that first crisis? The short answer is they fell asleep. Now, as always, it's really important that you read every passage in the Bible in its context. And you'll remember from last week that Jesus had already warned Peter of the opposition the disciples were facing. So glance back, if you will, to verse 31. <coughs> because in verse 31 Luke told us that Jesus said Simon, Simon Satan has asked to sift you as wheat but I've prayed for you Simon that your faith may not fail and when you've turned back strengthen your brothers. Now we said there that the you in that verse is plural because Satan wanted to test all of the disciples he wanted to sift them he wanted to see whether their faith was the real deal or not. And uh, this prompted the Lord Jesus to pray for them, and especially for Simon as the leader. So Jesus has already warned them that a test is coming. So, in verse 39, in our passage, they leave the upper room and they go out to the Mount of Olives where they uh, camped each night, And in verse 40, Jesus said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. In other words, pray that you will be able to pass the test that's coming your way. Now I need to tell you that in the original, it actually says, keep on praying. Make sure that you meet this crisis with constant prayer. And Jesus puts it like that because he doesn't want them to be overwhelmed when this terrific test hits them like a tsunami. Keep praying, Jesus says, that you will not fall into temptation. And then in verse 41 you'll notice that Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw distance beyond them and he prayed. Now he was in their sight. He was praying for himself earnestly, but he was setting them an example. And I want us to start this morning by thinking about the crisis that Jesus was dealing with and how he faced it. You see, for Jesus, the test at this point is whether he's going to go through with the cross or not. Now, that's clear, isn't it, from his prayer in verse 42. In verse 42, Jesus prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. It's a reference to the cross. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Now, these verses are extremely precious verses in the Gospel because they show us the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it really cost him to accomplish salvation for us. Now, I want to say, with 2,000 years of history separating us from those events back then, I think we tend to forget this. We say to ourselves, well, yes, he was the Son of God, Uh, he was raised on the third day, he knew that God was going to do that, and yes, I know that the cross was a very painful business, But Jesus always knew he would be okay in the end. I think we tend to think like that. Can I say that if we do, we are way off course. We haven't begun to enter into what Christ actually suffered. Because Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was being made sin for us. He whose life was totally without fault was going to become the sin-bearer for the sins of the whole world. So the agony that Jesus was facing as he prayed was not the the prospect of the physical pain that he was going to endure on the cross, no, no. It was the agonising tension between his human will and the divine will, the will of God. That's what Jesus was grappling with. Father, is it really your will that I should go to the cross? Or have I got this wrong? I wonder if you remember all the way back in chapter 4, we saw that immediately after his baptism, Jesus was taken out into the wilderness where he was tested by the devil. And back then, the test was whether he was going to actually be the kind of Messiah that God had called him to be. Or uh, was he perhaps going to turn stones into bread? In other words, was he going to put a stop to world hunger? That, of course, would have been terribly popular. Uh, Jesus could have been that kind of Messiah and he would have had thousands of followers overnight. Or was he going to get all the kingdoms of the world by bowing down to Satan? No need to go through the agony of the cross. Just... uh, Rubber stamp the devil's lies. People will love that. Yes, these were tests, you see, about the nature of his Messiahship. That's how the ministry of Jesus began. Lots and lots of pressure not to go to the cross. And now here, three and a half years later, at the end of his ministry... Jesus finds himself facing exactly the same test. Have I really got it right? Is this really God's will? Do I actually have to go to the cross? You see, for Jesus, this was the moment of choice. If Jesus stayed right where he was, then all of the events of the next 24 hours would be triggered. Judas would come, Jesus will be arrested he'll be condemned, he'll be crucified. But at this point, he could still go. He could have slipped away into the night, he could have disappeared into some remote village and none of that would have happened. Now that's what Jesus is facing. Is it really the Father's will that I should go to the cross? It was a very real test. And and therefore I think it's such an encouragement for us to see our Saviour going through that for us and praying at the end of verse 42, yet not my will, but yours be done. Because you see, the, the root of all the testing and all the temptation in our lives is the same. Am I going to do what I want in this situation or am I going to do what God requires? Every single time that we sin we prove we've chosen our own way not God's way. Now that was the test that Jesus faced and it's the test that the disciples are about to face as well. Are they going to... um, Stay loyal to the Lord and follow him, even to death, which is what Peter said last week. Or are they going to be defeated by Satan's sifting? Well, Jesus met the crisis with prayer. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And I think that makes verse 45 a tremendous shock, doesn't it? When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples... He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. You see, Jesus had told the disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. But when the moment of testing came, instead of praying, they fell asleep. Now friends, you and I face the same choice. Are we going to meet the crisis? Are we going to meet... The challenges of testing in our own lives with prayer, or are we going to go to sleep spiritually? Oh, I don't want to have to deal with that. I mean, I can't cope with it. Uh, I'm too tired. You can't possibly expect me to pray. Uh, I've got a busy life, got a job to do. Don't expect me to spend time in prayer. But Jesus met the crisis with prayer, the disciples met the crisis with sleep. And that is why Christ prevailed and the disciples didn't. And can I say that that lies at the root of all our discipleship failures as well. You see, by bringing this test to the Heavenly Father... And opening up the issues with God in prayer, what happened? Just notice this, it's absolutely fascinating. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. There is nowhere else in the Gospels where that happens to Jesus. What difference did that make? Verse 44, he prayed more earnestly. Now, notice, will you, that the angel didn't come to, as it were, airlift him out of the problem. The angel didn't say, Yup, you know, the Father's heard your prayer, and you know what? We found a way around the cross, so it's all right after all. No, the angel gave Jesus the strength to go on praying through his anguish so that he might do the Father's will. And in the crisis, Jesus triumphed in spite of his anguish because he was able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Indeed, as soon as he'd finished praying, very interesting, he went back to the disciples and verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. So, do you get this? When Jesus had finished praying, he actually had no choice because Judas had arrived and the whole chain of events was triggered. There was no going back. So for Jesus, at that point, the moral testing was over. And as he rose from prayer, he was able to do the Father's will, whatever it cost him. And thank God he did because we would have no salvation otherwise. By contrast, the disciples have to be roused from their sleep. They're totally unprepared for the crisis because they didn't obey the Master's instructions. And it ends in disaster for them because they didn't pray. Now what sort of Christian are you? What sort of disciple are you proving to be? How do you meet the crisis of testing? By prayer? Or by going to sleep and hoping that things will be better when you wake up? Well, let's move on and notice, secondly, the crisis of betrayal in verses 47 to 53. So this is the second of these little pictures that Luke is drawing for us at this point in the Gospel. And if the disciples met the first crisis by sleeping, they met the second crisis by force. Uh, Judas arrives with the arresting party and in verse 48, Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. By the way, just notice that little detail, will you? Um, Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, he notices that it was the right ear and not the left ear. And it's a detail, I think, that underlines the thoroughness of Luke's research and investigation before he wrote the book. So, how do you meet the crisis of betrayal? Well, by force, of course. Very understandable, isn't it? Um, The disciples are taken by surprise by this large crowd with clubs and swords, and so they spring into action to defend themselves and defend their master. And uh, the servant of the high priest uh, is the first casualty. But look at Jesus. You know, he, he stops the whole thing, doesn't he, before it even gets started. Verse 51, but Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. You see, violence is never Christ's way. Never. Violence, whether it is physical or verbal, Is the natural resort of people who are prayerless. Praying people don't resort to violence. Jesus says no more of this because he doesn't need their violence. And he explains the reasons in verses 52 and 53. He says, I've been teaching in the temple every day. Um, I'm not a rebel that you need to come after me with weapons. I was there in the temple courts in public and you didn't lay a hand on me. But, notice this, this is your hour when darkness reigns. You see, this isn't a crisis that can be settled by physical violence. And so uh, there's a place, isn't there, in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, where Jesus is standing in front of Pilate the Roman governor, and he says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. In other words, he's saying that's the way the world does things, by power, by force, by violence. But Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom is. My kingdom's from another place. And the kingdom of God never resorts to violence now that's the point that Jesus is making to the arresting party in these verses he was not a political revolutionary everything that he said and did was out in the open anybody could, could have come to listen to him anything, any day they liked in the temple and he says you could have arrested me at any time course, the authorities were so frightened of the people that they didn't dare to do that. But what Jesus is pointing out is that they weren't arresting a criminal. And think about this. When the authorities are operating within the law, they make their arrests in broad daylight in full view of everybody. It's only the secret police who come at night time, who come in the darkness. Because darkness is the devil's realm. And those who do the devil's business keep the devil's hours. Actually, you know, there's nothing that the devil enjoys more than for spiritual battles to be fought on his ground using his weapons. And that's what he's trying to do here. The devil is trying to get the disciples to use the weapons of the world to fight the Lord's battles. And here's the lesson. The point is that prayerless disciples will do that. But people who pray know that that's not how the kingdom of God works. God has other means at his disposal And we don't need to resort to violence. But remember, will you, that the devil is a liar, as we read in the Gospel of John, and in fact, he is the father of lies. And this entire scene was actually the devil's setup. Just think about this with me. The people who should have been committed to the truth, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they should have been committed to truth. They're actually trying to set Jesus up. You see, they're determined to make out that Christ was a political activist, which is precisely what he was not. And can you see that if the disciples fight, the religious leaders will be able to go to the Roman authorities and say, see how subversive Jesus Christ really is. Uh, When we went out there, um, he was ready to attack us. His men took out their swords. So we've actually done you Romans a huge favour. We've brought you a serious troublemaker. And if the disciples had used the world's methods, the Lord's ministry would have been brought down to the world's level. And that is always the devil's intention, to undermine God's work by tempting prayerless Christians to use the world's methods. So disciples who haven't prayed and who resort to force fall into the devil's trap. They fall right into his hands, and the Lord Jesus will have none of it. No more of this. He restores the damage that's already been done by touching the man's ear and healing him. And by doing that, he's just underlining the fact that that is not the way we do things in the kingdom. This is a spiritual conflict, and it must be fought with the weapons of love and truth. Now, very interesting, that is precisely what happened. Because the conflict was fought by the one man who had been praying for grace, the grace that he knew that he needed. And fighters like that are invincible. But without it, We're defeated before we even start. So there was this second crisis which they met by force and they were rebuked by Jesus. And that happened because they'd faced the first crisis by sleeping when they should have been praying. And so it's hardly surprising, is it, that they met the third crisis, the crisis of confession, by denial, versus... 54 to 62 you see the disciples were on a very slippery slope because you see if you don't pray you don't actually have the right perspective on the situation you don't see it for what it really is and when it comes to the crunch and you have to stand up for what you believe you don't And so here, the crisis of confession is met by denial. Now most of us, of course, are very familiar with this part of the story and uh, the point has often, and I think very well been made, that uh, about verse 54, and the last sentence in verse 54, that the disciple who follows Jesus at a distance ends up not following at all. Now that is certainly true spiritually. But I actually think that in the context that there was very little Peter could actually do. So I I want to sort of start a support Peter committee. Don't let's write him off because the other Gospels tell us that by this time all the rest of them had run away. At least he was there But you uh, you know the story well. And it's there on the page in front of us. Peter enters the enemy camp. Uh, He goes into the courtyard and he starts warming himself by the fire. And a servant girl saw him and recognised him. She might have been out there in the crowd when Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday just a few days before. She might even have been one of those people who was crying out, Hosanna! You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And maybe she remembers Peter's face because she saw him at the front of the procession with the Lord Jesus. And she says, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. And then he's challenged by the second man and there's the same denial. Man, I don't belong to him. And then a third person who seems to have recognised Peter by his accent. He says, yes, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. He doesn't come from these parts. But again, Peter denies all knowledge of Christ. You see, friends, at the end of the day, the spiritual battle is all about truth. And how often... We've been in Peter's shoes, haven't we? You remember what uh, Jesus said to Peter in verse 32? Jesus said to him, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And uh, Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now, I don't doubt for one moment that Peter meant that. He was being absolutely sincere. But you see, he was powerless. And so are we when we don't act according to the truth. And we've often been in Peter's shoes, haven't we? But the great encouragement in the passage is that the ultimate factor is not Peter's weakness in denying the Lord Jesus, the ultimate factor in the story is is Christ's commitment to Peter in praying for him that his faith would not fail. And that marvellous promise in verse 32 that Peter will turn back and he will strengthen his brothers. So as the scene unfolds and Peter denies Jesus three times and the cock crows just as Jesus prophesied in verse 34. What Jesus said comes flashing back into Peter's mind. Now look at verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Jesus is standing there in the courtyard waiting to be tried. He's being mocked by the guards And just at that moment, it's as if the crowing of the rooster freezes everything. And Jesus looks straight into Peter's eyes and straight into his soul. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And yet that very fulfilment of Christ's prophecy meant that actually, in the end, Peter's faith did not fail. At the very moment of crisis, he proved his Master's word to be completely true. And if it was true before the cock crowed that Peter would deny the Lord three times, and it was true, then it was equally true that when Peter turned back he would strengthen his brothers. In other words, there would be a way back. There would be a stronger ministry to other people. And the tears that Peter weeps in verse 62 are tears of bitter regret, tears of remorse, tears of sincere repentance. Very painful. But actually, Those tears are the first steps on a road that culminates in a renewed commission for Peter from the risen Lord to look after his flock, to feed the sheep, to tend his lambs. And so can you see that the the prayers of the Lord Jesus achieve their desired end? I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. I think if you'd spoken to Peter years later, I think he might have said something like this. He might have said, you know, that was the darkest and most difficult night of my life, but I thank God for what happened. And I want to say to us this morning that if God has humbled you, If he's brought you down into the dust, if you found yourself thinking, I've been so unfaithful to him, I've been such a failure, I haven't loved him, I haven't followed him, I've often denied him by my words, by my witness, by my life, well, can I say it doesn't end by going out and weeping bitterly that actually is often the first step on a pathway to renewal. Because, you see, Peter did emerge, didn't he, from that experience, a much more effective and committed follower of his Lord. I don't doubt for one moment that he found the whole experience utterly devastating. But, you know, friends, sometimes it's the devastating experiences... That actually have the most profound and the most beneficial long term effects if we will only respond in repentance and faith. Because failure is never the last word for the Christian. There is always a way back. And because there's a way back, there's a way forward. But sometimes God allows us to go right to the very end of our tether so that we learn to rely completely on his grace and to walk humbly with him. Now, my friend, as we close, can I ask, what sort of follower are you? You know, I think our prayerlessness needs to be confessed, doesn't it? We're not actually the praying people we ought to be. And even the best of us knows how weak our prayer lives really are, and we need to confess that to God. We need to ask him to have mercy on us. Often we also use the wrong methods. We use we resort to force. Force of words, force of personality and we're often tempted aren't we to to go the world's way and fight the spiritual battles by our words and by our actions as though we were engaged in some kind of worldly conflict well again we need to confess that to god and humble ourselves before him and we frequently deny our lord by our actions as well as by our words and we need to confess that to God we need to ask for his forgiveness and friends these are really really important things because if we don't do these things we're spiritually lost so don't shrug it off as followers of the Lord Jesus we all need to put ourselves in Peter's shoes and say Lord forgive me Lord cleanse me Maybe some of us need to do that for the first time this morning if we've never really trusted Christ before. Because you see, Christ was going through all of this that we're reading about so that we might be forgiven. He went through this so that we wouldn't have to bear our own sins but that he might bear them in his body on the cross. And if you're not yet a Christian if you've never really trusted Christ for yourself, these things are true for you as well. He wants to change your life. He wants to renew you. He wants to forgive you and to blot out the the past. He wants to empower you and strengthen you so that you can live for him. He wants you to become a real Christian. And if you are already a Christian... He wants you to be strengthened. He wants you to grow. He wants you to move forward. He wants to use the devastating experiences in your life, the humbling experiences, the things that we would never have chosen to go through ourselves, to teach us to trust him. Because without him we can do nothing. But whatever the crisis might be, If we really turn to the Lord, if we really trust him, if it cures us of our prayerlessness, cures us of our self-confidence and drives us to Christ so that we say, Lord, unless you help us, we're sunk. Well, that is the beginning of the road by which he renews us and leads us into a deeper experience of his grace than we ever imagined possible. So let's pray and ask him to forgive us and then to make us into the disciples that he wants us to be as he did for these men all those years ago. Let's pray. Let's have a moment or two of quietness as we make our own personal response to God. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of testing comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand Heavenly Father, you have called us to be engaged in a spiritual battle. But too often we've fallen asleep. We've switched off. Too often we've resorted to violence and taken up the weapons of the world. And too often we've denied you by our words or by our behaviour. Father, forgive us. Lord, we know we can't be strong unless we are strong in you and in your mighty power. Help us then to put on the full armour of God so that we can make our stand against the devil's schemes. Lord, this morning, individually and as a church, We want to buckle around our waist the belt of truth. We want to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We want our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We want to take up the shield of faith so that we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and we would take in your name the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and may we be people of constant prayer praying for one another for ourselves, for our church for our families, for our countries that this spiritual battle might be won through the power of our Saviour and for the glory of his name. Amen.